So the excitement of this evening is a handout, which I saw many of you picked up. If you didn't pick it up, it's not at all necessary for the talk this evening. It's just something that I think can be helpful, um, on, especially on a long retreat like this as we develop these teachings over many, many weeks, you may have noticed there's a lot of lists in the Buddha's teachings, lists that we use to frame the the Dhamma talks that we give. And this handout was created by uh, a teacher, Daniel Thornton, to kind of put all of these lists in context. And if your memory is at all like mine, pretty much like a sieve, I don't remember, you know, what's the fourth one of the five or the sixth one of the eight or something. So this is just a one-page, very simple kind of cheat sheet to the Buddha's teaching. And the main use of it now is just to put it aside. You do not need it. But if it's helpful for you to have as a reference point in your room or here, kind of like the bulletin board, you don't need to keep reading it. It's not going to change. But if you want a refresher on some of the, the different lists, the Eightfold Path or the Factors of Awakening or the Paramis, most of them, certainly not all of the Buddha's teachings are, are listed here, but a lot of the central ones. So as I said, I just find it helpful for people on a long retreat to, to, to have this so you don't, aren't stressed about trying to remember everything and certainly don't feel you need to write things down. So... That is just an offering, if it's helpful. If it's not, again, just put it aside. Put it at the bottom of the, put in the recycling, if you wish, whatever you want to do with it. But Just an offering, if you find it helpful. Because I am doing one of the lists, going through in a series of talks on these four foundations of mindfulness, this very central teaching from the Buddha on how to develop mindfulness, how to practice mindfulness in all these different ways. And if you're keeping track, we are up to the second foundation of mindfulness, which is uh, Vedana, uh, Nupassana, mindfulness of Vedana, which we usually translate as feeling tone. And this is this quality we've spoken about, of that every moment of contact having this affect of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. The Pali is sukha, dukkha, and in the Pali it's adukkha, masukha, neither unpleasant nor pleasant. That every moment of sense contact has this quality which we can notice. So we call it feeling tone. Sometimes just in shorthand we'll say feeling, but we don't mean emotions as in fear or sadness or anger or joy. It's more That's an emotional state. So feeling tone is just this very simple recognition of the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of a moment of sense contact, a moment of contact Um, And there's a simplicity to this, but also a power to it. Or The Buddha thought it was so important, it it became a whole foundation of mindfulness, a place he said you can develop mindfulness with and on. And it's so important that, say, in the Samyutta Nikaya, which is the Connected Discourse, is a great big thick book where there are themes of teachings gathered together, there's a Vedana Samyutta, so a whole collection of discourses the Buddha gave with this as the the central theme. And it's in the um, teachings on the aggregates. It's one of the aggregates, um, which I'll talk about. It's on your list. It's very central to dependent origination and central to another important text that's in the Vedna Samyutta called the Dart, which, again, I'll talk about later this evening. So the text in this section is very short. You know, literally just an inch or so of text, whereas the the body foundation goes on for pages with all of these different practices. This is very short. And it starts by saying, And how, monks, does one, in regard to feelings, in this translation they just say feelings, but it means Vedana, feeling tone, abide contemplating feelings? Here, when when feeling a pleasant feeling, one knows, I feel a pleasant feeling. When feeling an unpleasant feeling, one knows, I feel an unpleasant feeling. And when feeling a neutral feeling, one knows, I feel a neutral feeling. So this 
mindfulness of feeling. And that's usually the Vedana that we talk about, pleasant and pleasant neutral. But in the text, the Buddha actually expands that or um, elaborates to uh, divide feelings we can feel into worldly or unworldly feelings, pleasant and unpleasant neutral in both. In the world, the worldly feelings are the ones that we most commonly talk about of the six sense doors. So sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, even our mental, emotional life is in that realm of worldly feelings. Unworldly feelings are associated with our spiritual life or our meditation practice, particularly around renunciation or concentration as we're really very dedicated to this path. So a pleasant, unworldly feeling would be something like the joy of concentration or of the Brahma-viharas really um, deepened, even an equanimity and, and, the, and the, the mental state of patience or renunciation. These could be unworldly, pleasant feelings. Unworldly, unpleasant feelings can be when practice is challenging. You know, we've sincerely committed, but we might be opening to fear or grief around our meditation practice or coming from our meditation practice. Unpleasant uh, um, feelings from a sense of urgency around practice, really seeing the suffering in our own minds in the world and, and wanting to come to some sense of freedom and really feeling the, the pain of that and the urgency of that. It's called samvega, spiritual urgency. And it, it can actually have a mixture. It's like really feeling the necessity of purifying our heart and mind but with a sense that that's really beneficial for us. So there's also some, there's definitely positive in that. So the, the sutta is talking about both of those. Mainly we practice for most of us with the worldly feelings, but the, the teachings apply, the practice is the same for both. And it goes on to say, one abides contemplating feelings in the same way we do we did for the body internally, externally, and both internally and externally. So again, there's always this relational field in um, this, these practices of mindfulness. We're not just completely turned inward, but we're also acknowledging the feelings of others. And so we give instructions, particularly on a long retreat like this, that you can actually focus on the Vedana of your experience as a skillful means. I think I said in uh, the first talk I gave on this that the Buddha said any one of the foundations is sufficient to, if you practice it to lead to awakening. So this teaching on Vedna is the same, uh, that if you just focused on Vedna, that would be enough to propel you to liberation. So you can use it you know, as, a, as, a, as a, something that you do fairly continuously, really always or often noticing the Vedna things, or using it as a skillful means when it's helpful. I'll talk about both. So as I said, Vedana is also important because it's one of the five aggregates. One of us may give more of um, extended teaching on this in the retreat. A lot of us are talking about it in different ways. It, it's on your list, the aggregates of form, which for us mainly means the body, feeling tone, perception that Carol talked about the other night, mental formation, so all of the contents of the mind, and consciousness, this capacity to know. These are the five aggregates. And what the Buddha said about the aggregates is, this is where we cling. This is where we create a sense of self around. So that's why we need to pay attention, because the, for the, in the Buddha's teachings, when we create this sense of self, we limit and constrict ourselves and usually end up in suffering. So he said, pay attention to these five aggregates because this is where we tend to identify and therefore suffer. Now, identifying with the body, identifying with our thoughts, our mental life, seems kind of obvious. That's the common ways we identify. And I spoke a lot about identifying with the body in the two talks I gave on the first foundation. But so interesting that the Buddha said we also identify with our perceptions, and with this mental factor of Vedana, 
we can orient around it and create solidity around this relatively subtle movements in the mind. How we do that with Vedna is, when something's pleasant, what do we do? We want more of it. We try to hold on to it. We try to reach out and grasp it. When something's unpleasant, we try to push it away. It's usually the way we think about it. But Andy Olensky, who was the um, executive director scholar in residence at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies down the hill for a number of years, said this really interesting thing about this movement. He said, mindfulness reveals that grasping is not something done by the self, but rather the self is something done by grasping. The self is constructed each moment for the simple purpose of providing the one who likes or doesn't like who holds on to or pushes away what is unfolding in experience. So it's just a very different way of looking at this process. We usually think, I like, I want, I grasp. But to see that this force of grasping, which is impersonal conditioned thing, actually creates the sense of the self who wants that thing to make that whole process happen. It's a radical way of looking at it. And to see how out of this preferencing, and I'm particularly talking now about Vedana, out of our likes and dislikes, we create a sense of self. If you look at all of the groups that get created, the cliques, the political parties, the fan clubs, the, um, the identities we can have about dressing a certain way or, you know, fashion or um, music, all, all, you're in my club of the people who like the same thing, right? And those who are outside are uncool or don't get it or not sophisticated or whatever pejorative you might uh, have. And we always think that the way we orient is the right way, right? The things we like are the right things to like, the cool things to like, the best things to like, to prefer, and that everyone else isn't in it, isn't on to these correct things. And this self gets really solidified because we make a sense of self and other, the in-group and the out-group. Sometimes our in-group is just this one being and everyone else, but often we do it in this collective way too. Really interesting to see. So this whole process of creating the self that the Buddha talks about we do through this aggregate of Vedana is, is expanded in the teaching on dependent origination. Again, we've touched on it a little bit. We may talk more about it later in the retreat. This is a complicated teaching, but really profound. And I'm only going to go into it a little bit here. Again, don't try to figure it all out, but just to point to the heart of what the Buddha was saying, um, or the role that um, Vedana plays in this teaching. So dependent origination is this teaching on 12 links that go over and over again from ignorance to suffering. And what the Buddha says is ignorance, conditions, our sankharas, our mental formations. From that, um, we create, we have a self, we have a mind and a body, you know, the six sense doors are functioning. This is my simple version of this. So we have a mind and a body that are conditioned by these past experiences of ignorance and our mental formations. And then something happens, contact arises. It can be very simple, hearing a sound or more complex. But in that, immediately with you know, it happens so close together, it almost might feel with that moment of contact, this, this um, recognition of that contact being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral arises. If we don't notice that movement, that mental factor of Vedana, as I said before, what tends to happen is what's pleasant we grasp and try to hold on to, it's unpleasant, we push away. And what's neutral, we space out around. In the dependent origination, the, the, this movement uh, is said to then move into craving. 
I think we've said craving being the Pali word, translation of the Pali word tanha. Even though it's translated as craving, it includes aversion and delusion because it's just craving and aversion are two sides of the same coin. Delusion, ignorance is what fuels the whole show. If we didn't have ignorance, we wouldn't be moved into to craving. So we crave, we cling, and from that we become, and then there's the birth of a self, a birth of a being. And this can happen over lifetimes or in a moment. With every birth of a self, what the, the Buddha's teaching is, with every birth, there's a death. With, and the long hand for death is, you know, old age, sickness and death, grieving, lamentation, despair, dukkha. But if we don't see clearly, the ignorance is still propelling us into the next round of that same cycle happening. So as I said, and that in the traditional teaching, this happens over three lifetimes. The, the first two links, ignorance and mental formations, lead us into this birth. We have this cycle where there's contact, feeling, craving, and that propels us into a death and then the next birth. I think there's a, a validity or a helpfulness to just seeing that this also happens in this momentary level that the, the contact feeling craving is happening all the time. And there's this possibility in any moment to actually see more clearly. But so that's the big picture that the Buddha talks about, that we're propelled over and over again um, in this cycle of birth and death. And you can read many statistics on the different causes of death, you know, heart attacks or accidents or strokes. But the Buddhist grim humor is, what's the most common cause of death? Birth. You know, you get born, you're going to die. That's the common cause of death that we all share. doesn't matter how it happens, that is the inevitable ending of this life. So this uh, Vedana is a universal mental factor meaning it's there all the time, arising with this contact at the sense doors. But it's conditioned, and this is really important. We learn, basically, how to respond to these contacts. It's, it's very rarely... Um, well, it, it, it is a conditioned thing. And in talking with students about this... and, and one I was talking to a while ago exploring this, was seeing, you know, I don't see any, con any neutral feeling because they're so quickly moved to pleasant or unpleasant. Our mind wants to have this gravitational pull um, to it being pleasant or unpleasant because we don't like neutral. It doesn't feel enough. The mind either spaces out, doesn't pay attention at all, or it shades it into liking or not liking. Really interesting to watch. What can happen though, as the mind does get more steady, more equanimity, things do become more neutral. Not in an unpleasant way, not in a way of just boring and dull, but actually the mind not so much in that push and pull that we're so commonly in of liking, not liking, liking, not liking. Really, once you start to pay attention to this, you can see how constant this is. It's, it's really quite uh, amazing. So just to start to highlighting some of the ways this happens in our experience. So obvious ones here on the retreat. The one that always gets me is the temperature here in the meditation hall. Anyone notice that we may have different responses to the temperature, especially when it was warmer? I would come in here, I mean, I still find it relatively on the warm side, and I see people in sweaters and down jackets and with hats and scarves, and it's like, how can we be having such a different relationship to what is a scientifically measurable condition. 
the temperature in the hall. But you can, you know, there are people in t-shirts and people bundled up as best they can. We're having a different conditioned response to the contact of the temperature of the hall, its relative warmth or coolness. So it always interests me. It's like, I have to see my reality of, because I'll go out to the maintenance people and say, it's too warm in there. And they'll say, no, no, we can't. If we adjust it, it gets too cold. People complain. It's like, okay, I've given up. I just dress for being hot in here. But here's another good one. The bell. I mean, there's a way in which you could generally say that's a pleasant sound, even if you had no association with it. But we have association with it, right? We are deeply conditioned by this bell, right? Pleasant? I'm sure, given that we have practice leaders, you've had a few unpleasant ones, right? (laughs) But what happens if you've just settled into your meditation. You know, it's that time of day when things are really coming together and the mind is quiet and the hall has finally gotten still and... Is it still pleasant? Because you know what's going to happen is the hubbub and everyone getting up and leaving and should I get up if it was so good and now it's not. It's unpleasant, right? It's a conditioned thing depending not on the sound but on our experience and what we're bringing to that sound. Food here. Bhante gave this great teaching this morning on mindfulness of food. Really helpful to play with this noticing of Vedana as you, whenever it is you notice, you know, do you make a point of checking that chalkboard and seeing, you know, when is it going to get written up? I used to make a habit of not looking. I just didn't want to, because I knew the mind would just go into liking or not liking from that sense contact of seeing the words up on the board. But you get to the food line and there usually is liking or not liking, you know, and sometimes it's strong and sometimes it's subtle, but it, I guarantee you it's there. One that I used to laugh a lot about or play with was the eggs and bagels breakfast. You know, after weeks, it seems like of oatmeal, anything for a change is great. And now I think they've got more of a rhythm. When I was doing a lot of practice here, or maybe I just could never detect the rhythm of when they would happen, but, you know, it would be like such excitement to not be having oatmeal and prunes, you know. (laughs) But with the eggs and bagels comes all those choices, right? Is it worth having a bagel if it's not toasted? And if you want to toast it and they've got got four toaster slots for 100 people, how do you navigate that? So just the mind getting agitated. So at first it's pleasant, great, something different, and then it's unpleasant, there's too many people, and then, you know, getting in to get the jam, or, you know, is your bagel still hot and the eggs are getting cold? And after a while, from what I've seen of what they offer, oh, it's boiled eggs again. I mean, it never goes... Do they ever do anything different than boiled eggs? Someone saying yes. No, yes. So different perceptions of what (laughs) what those eggs are. My memory was always boiled eggs. After a while, it's like what was pleasant, right, becomes unpleasant just because of the agitation. I know people who say, I just don't go. Tuesday mornings, bagel mornings, you don't go. Or you go late, so you avoid just the whole kerfluffle of that energy around, you know, you can feel it in the room. So just to pay attention. And so they're kind of some retreat examples. You know, there's a way in which they're somewhat simple, but they're all the time everywhere. I saw, uh, just because it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of this, and so if I have a strong experience, I know it's really helpful to look at the Vedna of this. This is a more complex example And it's related to perception, again, that Carol spoke about the other night. A while ago, I read a book called Waking Up White by this woman, Debbie Irving, who grew up relatively wealthy in um, the southern United States. And in that book, she traces her process of uncovering huge areas of blindness and delusion, particularly in the area of race. 
So it's waking up to her white privilege, basically, and all of the assumptions that she made about life that she saw with greater and greater clarity weren't true. The assumptions about if you work hard, you can get anything, you know, you can go anywhere you want. America's a you know, place of democracy and equality. And, you know, if you work hard, you can, you can get what you need. And it was just a, such a huge wake up call for her. And, you know, and for me reading the book, I could relate to that to similar kinds of waking up of, of privilege and, and um, blindness. Because for, for as a white person, you know, we can be aware, obviously, there's racism, prejudice, but the out is, well, I'm not like that, right? I'm a kind person. I'm a good person. And her really pointing out, as have many of the other books and teachings that I've had about this, it's not enough, you know, to we really have to recognize the inherent privilege as a white person we can have in this society. And what I've also been woken up to is the pervasiveness of what we call institutional racism, where organizations with good intentions like IMS, like Spirit Rock, can have barriers to full participation just by the way we do things. And it was like an eye-opener for me, you know? Again, we're good people, we want people to come, you know, please, everyone should feel welcome. It's not that simple is it? We need to do a lot of work around our blindnesses and assumptions and the way we do things to be more welcoming, more inclusive. So, you know, very much in the process of that. One of the great examples uh, Irving gives in her book is the GI Bill, which I'm not a, from the U.S., but I had heard about it, this bill that for people coming out of the military from uh, ser particularly serving in wars, particularly after the Second World War, but I believe it's still going, where they would get access to education and housing to, as, a, as an, an appreciation for service. Seemed like a great idea. So many people took advantage of it, were able to get college educations, and you really saw the way that in the 50s, particularly, it built the middle class in America, really strengthened the whole um, country. What this book pointed out was that people of color routinely sidelined from accessing the benefits of that bill, particularly the education, particularly the housing. So we're just not able to make, make, have available that ladder into the middle class, into having a home. And so that prejudice that was there and carried out through that bill has had huge ripple effects. So something now like the GI Bill, I used to think, oh, what a great idea. Now I'm like, you know, it's actually unpleasant to think of something like the GI Bill um, and what it's done to people of color in this country. So just saying, talking about this as a more complex form evading as something that was pleasant becoming unpleasant and some and that we need to keep waking up in all of these areas of our lives that things are never as simple as we take them to be uh, in in um, first look so as I said in this process Vedana is happening over and over again so there's always the possibility of, with that moment of contact, seeing what the Vedna is. And then, if there's mindfulness, it doesn't have to solidify into craving, shorthand for greed, aversion, delusion, if there's mindfulness. So any moment, that possibility of breaking that cycle of contact, feeling, craving, and then, you know, the Buddha said, going on to becoming birth, old age, sickness, death, and suffering. Um, any moment, there's that possibility. We've talked about mindfulness as this non-reactive or non-judgmental capacity of mind. And it's kind of broadening, widening this moment, this present moment, so we can see more clearly. And not just out of knee-jerk reaction going to the 
pulling, push, pulling towards, wanting the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant. I, I read a little while ago this um, teaching that was attributed to Viktor Frankl, the Austrian um, psychiatrist, but other people say it's not him, but they say it's like him, so like what he would say. But this is the quote. Between stimulus and response lies a space. So that's like saying between contact and feeling lies a space. Or I should say between feeling and craving. In that space lies our freedom and power to choose a response. In our response lies our growth and our happiness. Between stimulus and response lies a space. So that contact happens with the Vedana. Can we be there for that? Create that little moment of mindfulness or space and not move into the habitual condition, knee-jerk reactions of greed, aversion, and delusion. What's important but really subtle or what even makes possible that non-reactivity, that momentary non-reactivity, is the neutrality of the mind in the moment when it clearly recognizes the Vedana of an experience. This is something we can really only talk to meditators about, and perhaps even long retreat meditators, because it's very subtle. Nyanaponika Tera, who's a German monk who ordained in Sri Lanka and I like his writing. He's always very impassioned about the teachings. But he has this great treatise on on Vedana, on um, feeling tone. And this is what he says. Yet feeling, feeling tone, by itself, in its primary state, is quite neutral when it registers the impact of an object as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Again, we, and Ajahn Amaro says, feeling is innocent. Our minds so quickly shade and move into the liking, not liking, pleasant, um, craving, aversion, that it's hard for us to register that. But that very neutrality is what makes all the difference. There's that moment of neutrality, non-reactivity, non-judgment, you could even say equanimity, that creates the choice point. And because this is happening over and over again, it's not like, oh, we missed it, therefore it's hopeless. We have another chance in this moment. Can we just register, oh, that's what this is. Pleasant, unpleasant. The neutrality of that registering. But as I said, we don't tend to go, stay in that neutrality. It's you know, the blink of an eye, even quicker than that, and we're in that conditioned response pattern of craving and not craving, I mean craving and aversion. The Buddha knew this 2,600 years ago, so the other teaching I wanted to go into tonight is called the Dart, and it is from the uh, Samyutta Nikaya, the Vedana Samyutta, this whole section on Vedana. It's a very famous teaching, and the, the, the Buddha says, bhikkhus, the unin, when the, the uninstructed worldling, and that's us, feels a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, and a neither ple- painful nor pe- pleasant feeling. The instructed noble disciple, so that's someone who's awakened, also feels a pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neither pleasant nor, unple- neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling. And he says, what's the difference between the two? And the monks basically go, we don't know, please tell us. And he goes, okay, listen. And he says, bhikkhus, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, they sorrow, grieve, and lament. They weep, beating their breast, and become distraught. They feel two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. Suppose someone were to strike a person with a dart and then they would strike them immediately afterwards with a second dart so that the person would feel a feeling caused by two darts. So too, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, they feel two feelings, the bodily one and the mental one. And even if the first dart is a mental dart, 
the, the, there can be still be a second mental dart, which is being contacted by that same painful feeling, they harbor aversion towards it. The underlying tendency of aversion towards a painful feeling lies behind this. Being contact by pain, contacted by painful feeling, they seek delight in sensual pleasure. For what reason? Because they know of no escape from painful feeling other than sensual pleasure. And so they, this is our habit, right? Something unpleasant happens, what do we do? We run away. We try to get a pleasant feeling to replace it because we don't know of any other escape. But when the instructed noble disciple is contra- contacted by a painful feeling, they do not sorrow, grieve, lament. They do not weep beating their breast and become distraught. They just feel one feeling, the first unpleasant feeling. They do not go into all of the weeping and the wailing and the chasing after the pleasant. This is the difference between an uninstructed worldling and instructed and a noble disciple of the Buddha. So what is this saying to us? When we have an unpleasant feeling, which we will, dukkha, first noble truth, we add to that, we create what we call the second arrow or the second dart, the wailing and the weeping. Now, in the sutta, it's extreme, but it's any of the thoughts that say, why me? Why is this happening to me? This shouldn't be happening. This is not fair. It's not right. It should go away. And how often do, when we have those kind of thoughts, we try to rearrange life to not have them, basically. So as the Buddha says, to replace an unpleasant feeling with a pleasant feeling to push the unpleasant feeling away. You can be doing this on retreat and not even consciously seeing that that's what's happening. If you just look at how you structure your day. Now I'm going to exaggerate here, but you may see moments where this might be what's happening. So you have your schedule, right? We've been here a number of weeks now. I won't comment on how many because we're just in the timeless now. But here we are somewhat settled in. And so you know, you know, have your morning sit, what you get up, you do your morning sit, breakfast, maybe you have yogi job, the place you like to sit in the dining room, have come in here for the sitting, and then it's a walking period, and at a certain, you know, in that walking period, the sun just happens to land on the lawn in a certain place, so that's your walking meditation for that time, and you've got all the energy from being in the hall, maybe hearing some instructions, another sitting, we sit in your spot, and then the next walking period, that one, not so much energy, so that one, I, that's when I have a cup of tea, right, and then that means that walking period's only about 10 or 15 minutes long, it's bearable, right, and then, you know, we have the next sitting, and then it's lunch, which is, all, you know, always good, doesn't matter if I like it or don't like it, it's entertainment, and then nap or whatever, and then a stroll, and then that's where I go look at the flowers and you know at this time of day then the sun I know lands in this walking room just right or you know and we've got our whole day arranged to basically make it more comfortable now in a lot of what I said there's nothing wrong with walking in a certain place at a certain time but what we want to do is look at do are we arranging our day to have as many pleasant moments as possible you know, to have the cup of tea at the right time or the walking in a place that's not crowded or with the sun or where it's warm or cool or whatever it is you're looking for. Again, no right or wrong in this, just to start paying attention. Our practice here is what will support mindfulness, not what will necessarily support more moments of pleasant mindfulness because that's not what it's about. So can we just be with the bare experience and not rushing as soon as something is unpleasant to replace it with a ple- something that's pleasant and certainly not adding the second arrow. And again, this is such a habit. I know it very well in my mind, whether, whatever you call it, grumpiness or resistance or frustration or you know the I don't like 
you know, just basically, I shouldn't have to do this. Why is it like this? Why are those people like that? Why are they coughing? Why are they doing this? Why are they in my walking path? Why is this basically happening to me? I don't like it. And therefore we, you know, do whatever our habits are. We can go into a version of everyone's else is annoying and bad and wrong and shouldn't be here or, you know, check out and go get the cup of tea or lie down or whatever it is, go read the bulletin board again, whatever it is that floats your boat to kind of get out of feeling that unpleasant feeling, that unpleasant contact that we were having. As Sylvia Borstein says, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. When we look at suffering as this mental agitation that we create, what's so important about this is that's the one that we have some control over. Pain is going to happen. Difficult experiences are going to happen. Difficult sense contacts are going to happen. But this mind that resists and complains and and negotiates and, and strategizes, that we can actually bring attention to. So we say always to ask not why is this happening, but what is happening? And can I know this in its essence, in its simplicity? So working with the Vedna in this way can be really revealing of the choices that we make through the day. So you can do this kind of intentionally where you just say for this period, whatever it is, from breakfast to lunch or for this walking period or this sitting period, for a day, whatever it is, that you'll try as best you can to notice or note the Vedana of experience. I think, though, Vedana is particularly helpful for us if we're having a strong or intense experience. So helpful to point to how the mind is relating. And all of us have our examples of this. We were talking at the in the staff room the other day about what I call mindless mindfulness. I'm sure you know, you'll know what I mean. So my example was, I think it was my first three-month retreat I did here so many years ago, but still strong in my mind. So it was in the 90s, early 90s, I think. And in those days, IMS was a lot more austere. You know, they've done so much to fix this place up, but food was also more austere. What they call simple dinner that I think you get once a week was pretty much what we get, got every evening. That was it. And anything else was like a radical departure in the food budget. I don't know what it was, but it was on the low end. So, but you know, that's what it was. We had enough. It was fine. But I remember this day, this lunch, probably about two months into the retreat, just the usual food put out. But you know how they put the good stuff at the table at the back? Now, mantra in the staff dining room is always, don't forget to check the back table. You never know when someone something might appear. Well, nothing much appeared back there during this retreat, except this one day where there was ice cream. I hadn't had ice cream for two months. And at this point, I was pretty slow and pretty mindful. I'd, I'd come to lunch at the end of the line, you know, I'd wait till most pe- everyone had gone through so there wasn't the kind of hubbub. And so, you know, I went through and then look, ice cream. I couldn't tell you the thoughts that started happening, you know, and I thought I was doing exactly what Bante was saying, you know, reaching and lifting and seeing and then ice cream. It was like someone, <laughs> a bomb had gone off. And, but it's interesting, there was so much sort of greed, lust for ice cream, but the aversion was immediately also there. You know, because I'd come late to lunch, it was out there, it was melting. Why didn't they have it on ice? You know, why don't they have more for the people who are slow eaters or who come late? And I don't have a bowl, I have to go back and get a bowl. And when will I eat it? And it's melting. And, and all this time I'm going walking, walking, and I go get, you know, I go put my food down and I get my bowl and it's like ice cream. It's already melting, but, you know, and then I put it down and I'm sitting there eating my food, which was probably, you know, beans and rice with that bowl of ice cream sitting there. I had enough self-control not to eat the ice cream first, but the whole time I'm thinking, and I'm going lifting, chewing, chewing, the mind is so agitated with all these thoughts of the ice cream is melting, it won't be any good, why didn't they have it on ice? And, you know, it's not fair, and slow eaters, and people who are more mindful don't get seconds, and da, da, da. 
very mindful. Finally, I finish. You know, when you're doing that, it takes a while to eat. And so I finally get to eat my ice cream. There's a little glop that's somewhat solid in the pool of melted. And I do that first taste. It's like, ah, oh, that's why I like ice cream. You know, it's smooth and creamy and rich. And it's like nothing I had had for these two months. And even though it's melted, it still tastes pretty good. And I, you know, I'm somewhat mindful, you know, of the, the lifting and the swallowing, a little bit the tasting, and then I finish it. You know, I could get more, but I, I put my dishes away, and I must say, walking out of the dining room, I was exhausted going through all that. Just all of the push and the pull, and it's like, oh, just glad it was over. So on to the next thing, you know, clean my teeth, go out to walk, whatever. Go through the rest of the day. Come into the 8.15 sit, just as we do here, 9 o'clock, there are questions. The first question, someone puts their hand up and says something like, you know, I was doing really well until they put the ice cream out. <laughs> and they just proceeded to describe how they worked with it, saw their mind, and it was like for me a light bulb went off. I saw I had not been mindful of that whole show of all of the reactivity, the pleasant, unpleasant Vedna, and the, I'd been mindful of the lifting and the tasting, but the whole show of the lusting after the ice cream and then the aversion around the melting and the da, 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 not enough and too much and this and that, I had not paid any attention to. You ever had that experience? Mm-hmm. You know, you're kind of, you know, thinking you're being mindful and there's such mindlessness. And I really saw from that the importance of this recognition of the Vedana because that was the first thing that was happening in all of this, this pleasant, unpleasant. I just didn't see it for a moment. So really, so helpful to stay in touch and be willing to notice what's happening in the mind. We keep talking about what's your attitude, how are you relating to this. This was such a great example of not seeing that at all. Mindless mindfulness. So as we explore Vedana, really helpful to see what is it. Because we often so closely relate it to the contact that's happening that we think it's in the sense door itself in the pain, in the sound, in, in the sense taste, in the seeing. It's not, it's a mental factor. It's in the mind. But it has this characteristic of being felt because it arises so in, entwined with the contact that's arousing it. So you don't sort of look for the Vedna in the pain in the knee. Um, it might seem like it's there, but it's a mental experience. And it's conditioned, not just by the experience itself, but by everything we're bringing to it. So really important to recognize that, that it's not telling you the truth of the moment, but how you're relating to that moment. And really important, as I was just talking about, to see it in our mental life, in our moods and thoughts and emotions. They also have a Vedana that we can be aware of. And it's that noticing, as I've said, that can help us not be so hooked around it and certainly not so identified with it. So really important to um, bring it into everything, every aspect of our experience. So it helps us see more clearly or understand more clearly why we react the way we do. I've taken to listening to a podcast called um, Invisibilia. It's an NPR podcast by um, three women, but the one that I listened to was just Alex Spiegel and Hannah Rosen. And in Invisibilia, the point of it is to reveal the hidden forces that shape us, that shape our experience. And on the one that I listened to, it was about um, emotions. And they had on it a psychiatrist or psychology professor called Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's written a book called How Emotions Are Made, which uses findings from neuroscience, biology, and anthropology to show us a new way to conceive of emotion. And what they said that was interesting is The way emotion works is opposite of what you think. 
Emotions aren't reactions to the world. Emotions actually construct the world. And I thought this very much related to that quote I used from Andy Olensky about how grasping actually creates a self to engage with the world. They're saying the same same thing through our emotional life, this conditioned experience. We create the world and how we relate to it. And um, Barrett talked about what she called interoception, which is the system that communicates to the brain what's going on in the body. Interoception keeps these messages very simple. All it communicates, she explains, is pleasantness, unpleasantness, arousal, and calm. This is the messages of the body to the brain. Sound familiar? So pleasantness, unpleasantness, but arousal, you know, is the reaction that we can have, and calm is kind of the neutrality. So just pointing to the body's capacity to know unpleasant or pleasant, neutrality, calm, and the state of reaction to that. More detailed information would overwhelm us, but the concepts, this is her going on, the concepts of emotion that we have learned, anger, sadness, joy, love, and so on, are how we explain those messages to ourselves. So from these simple building blocks, she says pleasantness, unpleasant, arousal, and calm, we would say just unpleasant, pleasantness, neutral. We build the building blocks of our world, of all our emotional life, of of how we relate to the external world. But we can see from this, and what the Buddha was pointing to, same thing, without MRIs or research or anything 2,600 years ago, the conditioned nature from these very elemental experiences, we create the world. It's exactly what the Buddha said. So... And I'll explore more about this creation of the, the mental life of the mind out of these building blocks in, in the next talk. Um, with this mental factor of Vedna, just like all of the other foundations and like all of our experience, subject to the three characteristics, impermanent, changing, conditioned, nothing solid there at the core. But you can perhaps start to see that there's more subtlety and complexity in this foundation than you may have known before. I don't, you know, all of us have different understandings of it and the power of it when we're not mindfulness, when we're not mindful of it. It really is such a driving force, really, around everything that we do, how we conceive of ourselves. And so as we start to track it in our immediate experience, can really see it in, in its essential nature. And perhaps you've had this experience of having a difficult sensation in the body, labeling it as pain. Um, but if you're mindful of it, what at first we, you know, if we label it as pain, the natural movement of the mind, right, is I don't like it, aversion, move away, unpleasant. But if there's mindfulness of those strong sensations, what was pain can become just strong sensation. Ever had that experience? And then can even become interesting. So something went from being very unpleasant to being perhaps a little neutral. And then if we get interested in it and the mind gets really engaged, can actually even become pleasant. The same experience. This is really interesting to track in doing the eating meditation. Again, Bhante instructed us in this morning. You know, there's the pleasantness of bringing the, the food, the anticipation, and then the first bite, the first chewing. When does that pleasantness become neutral? How much mulched up does the food have to be to beget that sort of gooey texture? And then when does it actually become unpleasant? Most of the time we're not mindful. We've long got rid of it before it gets to that, right? It's like, we, as he was saying, we're reaching for the next bite because what we're looking for is that hit. Here, as we're more mindful, can we actually track that? As we start to 
trace this for ourselves in these simpler ways, we can perhaps open up to the more complex ones that I've talked about. But the important thing to take from this teaching or this practice is what we're experiencing as pleasant or unpleasant or even neutral is not the absolute truth of the experience. It's conditioned for us as it is conditioned for each person here, each being on the planet. So we don't want to hold it so tightly as this is the way things are. How can people abide this? It's so unpleasant, whatever. You know, you can react about anything, about the paint color or the, you know, the food that's offered or the temperature in the meditation hall. How can they have it be so warm in here? Obviously, not everyone feels the same. What I've noticed is when I'm willing to notice the Vedana of something, the mind does relax a little. Oh, that's why I don't like it. It's unpleasant. Or around the ice cream. Oh, that's why I like it. It's pleasant. And I don't necessarily have to go on to making a whole story about it going into the reactivity, the pushing and the pulling, this neutrality can be there. The mind that's noticing that isn't averse, isn't craving. And in that podcast, they had a reference to some lyrics from a band I'd never heard of called The Silver Jews, who had this line in a song called People, where they said, you can't change the feeling, but you can change the feeling about the feeling in a second or two. You can't change the feeling because the Vedana has just arisen. Really, some people say you can change it, I think almost impossible, but it's there. But our feeling about the feeling, if there's mindfulness, you can change the feeling about the feelings in a second or two. A lot of wisdom there. So using this as a doorway, as the Buddha said, it's a doorway to freedom. And what we're also doing here is cultivating more of the unworldly, pleasant feelings, the joy of mindfulness, of concentration, of letting go, of renunciation, of patience, the joy of a concentrated mind. As as the Buddha said, why should I be afraid of that wholesome pleasure of the concentrated mind? Analeo Venerable Nala, in his book on Satipatthana, said, After his awakening, the Buddha declared himself to be one who lived in happiness. This statement clearly shows that, unlike some of his ascetic contemporaries, the Buddha was no longer afraid of pleasant feelings. As he pointed out, it was precisely the successful eradication of all mental unwholesomeness that caused his happiness and delight. In a similar vein, the verses composed by awakened monks and nuns often extol the happiness of freedom gained through the successful practice of the path. Indeed, the early Buddhist monks delighted in their way of life as testified by a visiting king who described them as smiling and cheerful, sincerely joyful and plainly delighting, living at ease and unruffled. To him, the degree of joy exhibited by the Buddha's disciples corroborated the appropriateness of the Buddha's teaching. So it's not about not having Vedana, but that there is this possibility of the mind through this clear seeing more and more of the unworldly pleasant Vedana, of the Brahma-viharas, of metta and compassion and joy and equanimity. So it's not about not feeling, but not being tossed about by feelings. Feelings are just feelings. We don't need to solidify them into me or mine to let them push and pull us into craving and aversion. I'll just finish with the words of the Buddha from the Sutta Nipata. For some people contact the point where sense plus object, meat, is enthralling. And so they are washed by the tides of being, drifting along an empty, pointless road. Nowhere is there any sign of broken chains. But others come to understand their sense activity 
And because they understand it, the stillness fills them with delight. They see just what contact does, and so their craving ends. They realize the total calm. The calm comes from the end of grasping. So let's just let the words settle into silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.